It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. Good evening. We're going to begin in chapter 12 this evening. Chapter 12 really begins by giving us a very capsule history of the spiritual warfare that leads us ultimately to where we are in this prophecy, and that'd be the third woe, the final stand of Satan, if you will. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of two great signs given in heaven, which in fact make the citizens of heaven aware of this span of spiritual warfare is going on or going to occur, and that God will be the victor. Satan loses his demonic forces on the earth. He just turns them loose immediately after creation. God provides his redemption, his Messiah, his son, born through his wife Israel, who will ultimately rule the earth with an iron staff. And he, Messiah, is taken up into heaven where he waits a call to return and rule. That effectively ends the history portion, really, from our perspective and begins a prophetic revelation, a prophetic revelation. Sometime in our future, Israel, the people, will be taken to a place of safety on the two wings of the great eagle. And I want to add a little information for us to consider, something to chew on. There are a lot of similarities between the judgments that are going to be brought on the world before Messiah returns to rule the world as king from Jerusalem for a thousand years, and the plagues that were brought on Egypt before God took Israel out of Egypt to the promised land where he, God, was to live among them and be their king and did. The Egypt happening, in fact, foreshadows the end times in many ways. I can't get uh, thoroughly into that because it would use up more than our whole hour tonight. But God protected his people from the plagues of Egypt. Just keep that in mind. God protected his people from the plagues in Egypt. Revelation indicates that he will do that again, protect his people from the plagues, during the judgments at the end of the age. We saw that in the, in the fifth shofar where the released demons were denied access to those sealed to God. Before God destroyed Pharaoh and his army, who were a type and foreshadow of Satan and his demons coming later, Israel was safely removed from the scene of the action to a place under God's protection in the desert, under a cloud filled with fire, the fire in the cloud being the visible glory of God. And we can tie Isaiah chapter 4 to this, if we so choose to. You can do that on your own. Revelation 12.6 makes reference to this. So let's begin there. Revelation 12 verses 5 and 6, please, if you will. She, that is Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God and his throne, and she, Israel, fled into the desert where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be taken care of for the 1260 days, the three and a half years. Israel will be taken to a place in the desert where she will be safe during the destruction of Satan and his army of demons. The language indicates the same kind of phenomenon as during the Exodus. And then the final events of the war begin. Satan and his demon army is expelled from heaven. They're thrown down to earth. Hurled, here in the Greek, has the connotation of excommunication. 
which brings us to Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12, please. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come God's victory, power, and kingship, and the authority of his Messiah, because the accuser of our brothers, who accuses him day and night before God, has been thrown out. They defeated him because of the Lamb's blood and because of the message of their witness. Even when facing death, they did not cling to life. Therefore rejoice, heaven and you who live there, but woe to you, land and sea, for the adversary has come down to you, and he's angry because he knows his time is short. The kingdom of the world became the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Transition, if it is nearly complete as as we're given this information. Satan and his angels will be thrown down to earth at this time and confined here. We looked at that last time. The process of wresting control of the earth from Satan was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. God said to the serpent there, concerning the seed of the woman, that would be Messiah, you will strike his heel, speaking of Satan, and he will crush your head, again speaking of Satan. The kingdom that Satan conned from the man and the woman in the garden will be taken from him. The beginning of this process is with Yochanan the Immerser, or John the Baptist. So let's go to Mark, chapter 1. We'll begin with verse 1 and then jump to verse 14. The beginning of the good news of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God. Then beginning in verse 14, it says, After Yochanan, John, had been arrested, Yeshua came into the Galilee, the Galilee, proclaiming the good news from God. The time has come. God's kingdom is near. Turn to God from your sins and believe the good news. Yeshua is saying at the very start of his ministry, very start of his ministry, that God's kingdom is near. What he is indicating is that God's Messiah himself is now on the scene. Messiah is now on the scene. The one who has authority over the earth is about to bring change. The one who currently holds power is about to be replaced. God's kingdom is near. Turn from your sins. The instructions of Satan is to no longer occur. The time has come to follow Adonai God, to make teshuvah, if you will. Teshuvah is to return, return to God. Believe the gospel, the good news. God's Messiah has arrived at the end of his first ministry. Just prior to his ascension, the authority over the earth changes. Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 through 18. So the eleven Talmudim went to the hill in the Galilee where Yeshua had told them to go. When they saw him, they prostrated themselves before him, but some hesitated. Yeshua came and talked with them, and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is after he's been on the execution stake, put in the tomb, and brought out of the tomb. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Yeshua is now the new elect ruler, or the new ruler elect, if you wish. It happened at the execution stake where the serpent struck his heel. Now he is in the position to crush the serpent's head, which fulfills Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Put that up, if you will, please. Adonai God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust as long as you live. 
I will put animosity between you and the woman, and between your descendant and her descendant. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. We've looked at this before. Yeshua is now the ruler-elect. He will take office and replace the current ruler, Satan. That's the end of the current ruler's term. It's like our president elected in November doesn't take office until January. Well, the end of the current ruler's term will arrive with the hurling down from heaven of the adversary and his angels. Adversary being the current ruler, when they're thrown out of heaven, they are thrown down to the earth and their rule, his rule and their rule are completely ended. The loud voice from heaven says, Revelation 12.10, When I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come God's victory, power, and kingship, and the authority of his Messiah, because the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before God, has been thrown out. That's just as simple as that. He's been thrown out. He's got no authority left. We need to look at a couple of places uh, very quickly. Let's start with Psalm 110 and verse 1. It's a psalm of David. Adonai says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, I will make your enemies your footstool. Who's the main enemy of, of our Messiah? Satan and all of his followers. Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. Remember that Yeshua will sit at the right hand of God. Now, Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne, says Adonai, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me? What sort of place could you devise for my rest? The earth will have been made Yeshua's footstool. It actually has been. It was done that at his first coming. What comes to rest on the footstool? One's heel. If you don't believe me, stretch yourself out and put your foot up. And what comes to rest on the footstool? Satan has been hurled down and confined to the earth. He can't escape from this. And Yeshua is about to crush him with his heel that was struck. The earth has made Yeshua's footstool, and the serpent is lying on it with nowhere to go. When the heel comes to rest, if we read the rest of Psalm 110, we see that what it is saying is being fulfilled with the return of Yeshua's King Messiah. We need to spend just a minute with this word accuser that's in Revelation 12.10. Who is being accused? Well, it's not the unsaved. He's got them in his pocket. That's Satan speaking. It's the faithful that he, Satan, is after, that he's lobbying the court for. And his devotion to this lobbying is immense. Satan never ceases in his accusations. Day and night he gives it no rest. Remember in Isaiah 62, 6, where we are exhorted as watchmen to never fall silent day and night in our prayers. Well, Satan never falls silent in his accusation against the saints of God. Does it day and night before God? First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 tells us, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. We're taking part in this spiritual warfare through our prayer life if we do this. And we are involved in this war like it or not. So we're to pray without ceasing. Let's look at Revelation 12:11, please. They defeated him, that's the adversary, because of the Lamb's blood and because of the message of their witness. 
Even when facing death, they did not cling to life. The we are the they that is spoken of here. We are the they that are spoken of here. They defeated him because of the Lamb's blood and because of the message of their witness. That's us. Even when facing death, they did not cling to life. We win, but we don't win purely of our own effort. Satan is defeated because of the Lamb's blood and because of the witness of the saints, us. That's a composite requirement, if you will. The work of Messiah through his sin sacrifice and the individual's reliance on that work. Faith in the work of Messiah manifesting itself in behavior is our witness. That is what results in the defeat of Satan in our personal lives and in the lives of those who observe us and believe because of what they're seeing. The indication here is those living in the time of the tribulation will be required to take their cross, take up their cross, and follow him, Messiah. Their physical bodies might be killed, but they will be living on in eternity. Americans don't want to hear this, but Yeshua spoke to us of this in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. He loves his, he who loves his life loses it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it safe right into eternal life. If someone is serving me, let him follow me. Wherever I am, my servant will be there too. My father will honor anyone who serves me. In so many words, this is saying that whoever doesn't want to give up his physical life loses his spiritual life, probably. None of us want to be killed. Now, realistically, none of us want to be killed, but that could boil down to this, denying Yeshua. To deny Yeshua would save the physical life, but throw away the eternal life. On the other hand, what would be the ultimate state, what would be the ultimate statement of witness to not deny Yeshua under pain of death. That would be the ultimate statement of witness. Losing the physical life, but gaining an eternal life in the presence of God and Messiah, and this defeats Satan. This defeats Satan when we do this. Of the original eleven Talmudim disciples, not counting Judas Iscariot, only John, only Yochanan died of natural causes. The other ten were killed for their faith. I heard someone say once that being a part of the body of Messiah really wasn't for sissies. Look at what this act of witness really says. Nobody gives up their life for a lie. These ten men had rock-solid faith. Satan is defeated by the Lamb's blood and by the message of the witness of those who follow him. Satan is defeated. Yeshua is given the authority over heaven and earth. He will expel Satan from heaven and crush him and all that follow him, and they will be crushed on the earth. Which brings us to Revelation 12.12. 12. Therefore rejoice, heaven and you who live there. But woe to you, land and sea, for the adversary has come down to you, and he is very angry, because he knows that his time is short. Therefore, rejoice, heaven, and you who live there. But woe to the physical earth, because the adversary has come down to you, and he knows that his time is short. The word heaven here is plural in the Greek. The word heaven is plural in the Greek in this particular statement. Of the 53 times heaven's used in the book of Revelation, 52 times it is singular, 
This is the only case that is plural. Paul, Paul said he was taken up into the third heaven. That would seem to confirm that there are multiple layers of heaven. What form that takes, I won't even attempt to lay out, except to tell us that if we look at the Greek in archaic form, now let's go back and look at the Greek in archaic form in some of the earliest scriptures, heaven seems to indicate a temporary dwelling place like a tent. So this seems to indicate a temporary nature for heaven as well as for earth. And when we get to chapter 21 of Revelation, it tells us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth coming down. This would seem to introduce the concept that those who live in the heavens are also going to get a permanent home in eternity, which in fact chapter 21, when we get there, we'll discuss. There's a, there is the possibility that these who it talks about living in heaven are not just angels but believers who have been taken up through history. To put it in Florida terms, the retirees don't necessarily live in the same place as the management staff, but yet they might. This is talking multiple heavens that are as temporary as the physical creation itself, all of which are ultimately replaced. Something to consider. Satan is permanently barred from heaven, that heaven that he previously had had access to, and earth is issued this warning about this. You've got him now, and he isn't happy. He's very angry because his time is short. He's going to lash out. Again, this warning is named so much at non-believers as his believers because they are part of Satan's problem. And we've just been told that believers are contributing contributors to his demise. He's coming after those that he think are the ones responsible for him being thrown out and taken down. Revelation twelve thirteen through 18 talks about this very thing. Complete Jewish Bible, though, I believe understates the condition. Uh, it's about 10 varies short of catching how angry Satan is going to be at this time. He's going to be very, 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 very angry if you will. It says at the end of this chapter that the dragon stands on the seashore. Let's go back for a second to Revelation 10, 1 and 2. Next, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was dressed in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, his legs like columns of fire, and he had a little scroll lying open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This mighty angel stands one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. This angel, at this point, can control all of the earth. He's got one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. Satan will only be standing on the seashore. He will be limited. He's still under control, still limited by God and what he can do. He can't do all that he would like to do if he had his full druthers. Satan realizes that his time is short. He's angry that his time is short. What does he do? He goes after the ones he thinks are responsible for his condition. Revelation twelve thirteen and 14, please. When the dragon saw he'd been hurled down to the earth, he went in pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly to her place in the desert where she is taken care of for a season and two seasons and half a season, three and a half years, away from the serpent's presence. Now understand that the woman's being spoken of here is Israel. 
But the Israel was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly to her place in the desert where she is taken care of for a season, two seasons, and a half a season away from the serpent's presence. First thing Satan does is look around for the woman, Israel, that gave birth to the male child who is Messiah. Remember from verse 6, God is prepared for this eventuality, Satan trying to destroy the woman, Israel. God prepares for this before Satan's hurled down by doing what he did in the exodus from Egypt, taking Israel to a place where the adversary can't get to her. There is a description of what he did then, back when he took Israel out of exodus to a place where Satan couldn't reach her. Let's go to Exodus 19. This is in the third month after the people have left Egypt. They're now camped in front of the mountain of God, waiting to receive Torah. And listen to what Adonai says about his taking Israel out of Egypt. Exodus 19, 3 and 4. Moses went up to God and Adonai called to him from the mountain. Here's what you are to say to the household of Jacob to tell the people of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carry you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See that last term? How I brought you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the same thing that's being quoted to us again as we get into the Revelation. That's how the exodus from Egypt, from the oppressor who was seeking to destroy her, is described by God. And this is the beginning of supernatural intervention by God. We see this supernatural event continue in the parting of the Red Sea that allowed the people of Israel to escape, closing up of that sea that destroyed Pharaoh and his army. Revelation 12.14 speaks to the same kind of supernatural intervention by God in this escape of Israel from the world, wings of the great eagle. Note that this is speaking of Israel being taken to her place for the three and a half years of protection. And that's interesting. A lot of commentators have gone off on the deep end with this. I think this is simply talking about Israel's place, Israel and those that have joined to them, Israel and those that have joined themselves to Israel. That would preclude any that are not Israel and have joined, not joined themselves. This is Israel's place. And as I mentioned last week, this could very well be limited to just messianic Israel. Let me give you a couple of scriptures to consider here. First of all, let's stop at a very familiar passage, Zechariah thirteen eight and 9. In that time, throughout the land, says Adonai, two-thirds of those in it will be destroyed. The land there is speaking of Israel. Speaking of two-thirds of Israel being destroyed, they will die, but one-third will remain. That one-third I will bring through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And they will say, Adonai is my God. See, there is this remnant of Israel that is brought through the fire that is gathered to God. Satan is now hurled down and made prisoner on the earth and is seeking Israel to take vengeance on. There will have already been huge decimations of the world population beyond Israel. A fourth of the world taken away, we were told, when we looked at the fourth seal. A third of what was left was taken at the sixth shofar. That totals half the world's population is gone by the point where we reach this time. And not necessarily 
applied equally over all the world. There will be places in the world where greater numbers will be taken and places where smaller numbers will be taken. Jerusalem and Israel are the center of the spiritual wealth warfare on the planet. Jerusalem and Israel are the center of spiritual warfare on the planet, and Adonai has promised us in the fifth shofar that those with his seal can't be harmed by the demonic invasion. Could be that this third of Israel, that is the remnant, is what is left at the time. Now, God says he's going to once again carry Israel on two wings of a great eagle to safety. Question, who left Egypt on the wings of the eagle? Those who believed in the salvation of Israel's God, both Israel and Gentiles. Remember, there were almost equal number of Gentiles came out of Egypt with Israel that came out of Egypt. Those who didn't believe in the salvation of God stayed behind. Who is the salvation of God? Yeshua. And God's promise to take care of those that are bearing his seal. Okay, how does one get this seal? Through Yeshua himself. Jews and Gentiles, a remnant of the faithful to God out of the world. Go to Micah, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, please. I will assemble all of you, Jacob, and gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in a pen, like a herd in its pasture. It will hum with the sounds of people. The one breaking through went up before them. They broke through, passed the gate, and went out. Their king passed on before them. Adonai was leading them. Adonai was leading them. The remnant of Israel and the Gentiles who have joined them. Messianic Jews, I believe, and the Gentiles that have joined themselves to the Messianic Jews. And this is not a rapture that's taking place here. Look at that last line in verse 12. It will hum with the sounds of people, human beings, in a place where they'll be taken care of for three and a half years between the hurling down of Satan and his being placed in chains and confined to the abyss during the thousand-year reign of Messiah over the earth. This Wings of Eagles has really gotten a lot of off-the-wall interpretations. There's one group that has gone on record of saying, Are you ready for this? The Eagle is the emblem of the United States Air Force. It must be the USAF that flies these people to safety. I don't think so. Understand, physical change of location will not protect Israel that Satan is seeking to destroy. It will require a supernatural intervention. Just one more passage for us to consider here. First Peter 5, 8-11 Stay sober. Stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, Satan, stalks about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand against him, firm in your trust, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same kinds of suffering. You will have to suffer only a little while. After that, God, who is full of grace, the one who called you to his eternal glory in union with the Messiah, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you and make you firm. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Messianic Israel and the Gentiles that have joined them will be placed in safety on the earth where Satan is not allowed to harm them. Not during this final demonic invasion. And he's going to try. He is going to try. Yeshua says, though, in Matthew twenty-four, fifteen, and 16, please, 
So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the readers understand the illusion. That will be the time for those in Judah to escape into the hills. That's those of Israel that are left. And this is not of their own power that they will be able to escape him. Isaiah 33, please. 15. He whose life is right and whose speech is straight, he who scorns getting rich by extortion, he who shakes his hand free of bribes, stops his ears against talk of bloodshed and shuts his eyes against looking at evil. Such a person will live on the heights, his refuge a fortress among the cliffs, his food and water supply steady. This is describing the faithful, those who follow God's instructions. There's so much more information available in this, but we really need to move on. So let's go to Revelation 12:15 and 16. The serpent spewed water like a river out of its mouth after the woman in order to sweep her away in the flood. But the land came to her rescue. It opened its mouth and swallowed up the river which the dragon, Satan, had spewed out of its mouth. The adversary does try to get Israel. What this is telling us, he just can't get the job done. Remember that in Exodus, water seemed to be poised to cause the demise of Israel. They were faced with the Red Sea, backed by an enraged pursuing Pharaoh and his army. Israel up against the Red Sea with no way to escape. Water was going to be their demise, but God opened a dry path for them to escape across. Here, now think about that, God opened a dry path for them to escape across. Here, Satan's just tried to flood the place with water, but water is sucked up by the earth to again provide dry land over which to make the escape possible for those of Israel. I think this is highly stylized language used to indicate the supernatural activities that are taking place as the serpent pursues his quarry, that everything he tries to do to break through, to destroy Israel, is prevented by God. Floods of water are used to indicate destruction, overwhelming deluge, torrents ripping things apart, but the earth swallows it up. The earth swallows it up. During the desert wanderings at the time of Korah's rebellion against God's appointed leadership, the rebels, who were most certainly satanically inspired and followed Korah's and in his rebellion, were swallowed up by the earth. And that effort to destroy Israel, to fracture it apart from within, came to nothing. So also does this effort to destroy Israel come to nothing. These are God's redeemed remnant. We have to just take that in mind. Could end up being some of us if it happens quickly. These are God's redeemed remnant. He has pledged their safety. Note also, the deliberate play on words here. What comes out of the mouth of the dragon is taken away by the mouth of the earth. What comes out of the mouth of the dragon is taken away by the mouth of the earth. Satan no longer has dominion over the earth at this point. That's a thing we have to just absolutely, totally understand. Satan has no longer any dominion over the earth at this point. Back up in verse 10, Authority has been turned over to God's Messiah, under whose blood this remnant is now covered. The superiority of the one who now controls the earth is greater than the one who has had his authority taken away. The earth now does the bidding of Messiah instead of Satan. The language, again, is highly symbolic. 
One last thought on this. Note that John uses both dragon and serpent in describing Satan in this chapter. This is actually the third time the serpent is specifically used instead of dragon. This raises the picture of the serpent and the woman again from the garden, if we want to go back that far. This raises the picture of the serpent and the garden again, where out of the mouth of the serpent flowed deception. Out of the mouth of the serpent in the garden flowed deception, which caused the woman to be cloaked in death when she accepted the deception. Is this then a last-ditch effort by the serpent to once again deceive the woman, Israel? If so, through Messiah the deception is swallowed up by the earth, now under Messiah's authority and comes to no avail against those that God has removed to a place of safety and care. Or perhaps the deception is attempted an attempted rise in anti-Semitism that fails because the earth is now under the authority of Israel's Messiah. Think about that. Perhaps the deception is an attempted rise in anti-Semitism that fails because the earth is now under the authority of Israel's Messiah. We're going to find that more and more of the world is moving further and further away from God and his Messiah. Whatever this flood that would destroy the remnant of Israel is, it isn't going to occur because God, through Messiah, now has his people firmly in his protective grasp. Revelation twelve seventeen, please, 17 and 18. The dragon was infuriated over the woman and went off to fight the rest of her children, those who obey God's command and bear witness to Yeshua. Then the dragon stood on the seashore. Think the dragon was angry about being hurled down from heaven? Well, now he's really in a rage. He's infuriated. The implication is he's foaming at the mouth. The attitude becomes, if I can't have the earth, I'm going to destroy as much of it as I can before they do away with me. The woman, Israel, is fully protected and beyond the reach of the dragon. Remember, they are probably only at that point Messianic Israel. They're beyond all attempts to reach her and destroy her. One of the personality traits, though, of the dragon, of the adversary, of Satan, comes into view here. Rage and vengeance will be vented against those that are associated with the woman Israel. This would be believers, those who profess faith in her son. The word children here is really seed. And there are a couple of thoughts on this. The natural inclination is to think this is talking about Jews. Some interpret this as talking about Gentile Christians. And that won't sell very well with those who hold to a pre-trib rapture. Now, I'm not sure how they come to this conclusion. If you come to to that conclusion, you must have made the conclusion that all the Jews in diaspora have made Aliyah, that it's everybody that's in Israel. Look carefully at what it's saying here. Those who obey God's commands, that would be Torah, and bear witness to Yeshua. For this to be Gentile Christians, the church, they would have to allow for changes in Torah for it to be acceptable, which Yeshua has specifically said is not going to happen. He says not the smallest mark or pen in the Torah will pass away until everything is done that has to be done. Matthew 5.18 This is not to say Gentile Christians won't get sideswiped by this vengeance and rage. After all, they are in the kingdom. Others say no. This seed, the woman's seed, Israel's seed, means that it has to be Jews. 
has to be Jews, has to be Israel. Now understand that many of the lost tribes are returning to the land of Israel. The tribe of Manasseh, as an example, is being flown in by plane loads. That this has to be Messianic Jews, still out in diaspora, could still happen because will everybody get flown in? All right. How about if it's both? Both the true Gentile church and the Messianic Jews out in diaspora. How's that for waffling on the subject? Well, how can that be? Well, there's been a case made for the Messianic Jews and those who have joined with them being untouchable in a safe haven. Let's look at a couple of possibilities. Genesis 3.15 I will put animosity between you and the woman and your descendant and her descendants. He will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. This is talking about animosity between Satan and Israel and between the false messiah and the messiah of Israel, your descendant and his descendant. God's talking to the serpent about Israel and the Messiah. The idea here is that those born of someone are their seed. By extension, those who belong to Messiah are Messiah's seed. Those who are born again would be Messiah's seed. Now let's go to Romans chapter 11, verse 15 through 18. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now if the challah, the bread, offered his first fruits as holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off, and you, a wild olive, are grafted in among them, and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you are better than the branches. This is speaking to the Gentiles. However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. And that's speaking of the tree that represents Israel. This is speaking this whole total passage here of the believing Gentiles grafted in also seed of Messiah. In a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. That's what's being talked about in Revelation 12:17, her other children, who by extension are those who follow her son, the Messiah. Note that this indicates that the Gentile believers are grafted in. In this sense, in this sense, they are no different than from Jewish believers. In this sense, that makes them no different than Jewish believers. If they're grafted in, they are the same in the eyes of Satan. He is prevented from getting to the woman, so he is going after anyone who believes in her son, both believing Jew and believing Gentile, in his rage. In chapter 13, we'll describe for us how he will do this. Remember that God deals with Israel in both corporate and individual basis. God's removed corporate Israel, the entire believing body of Messiah, from the grasp of Satan. That leaves Satan the only option for someone to vent his rage on, and that be individuals within that body. Remember when we looked at the cursing of the fig tree, corporate Israel was cursed for rejecting Messiah, but individuals of Israel received their salvation through belief in Messiah. Same kind of event in play here. Corporate Israel, the body of Messiah, beyond Satan's reach, but individuals within that body could still be subject to attack and could still fall away. This does not say they will be caused to fall away. All of the protections that God has put in place for those who are sealed to him are still in effect, but Satan is coming. 
He's coming to come after individuals, both Messianic Jew and Messianic Gentile. And chapter 13 will get us into details on how he's going to go about doing this. Always keep in mind that we're not necessarily talking about keeping anyone from physical death. It's always our eternal destination that God holds to be most important, and that is to be with him. The dragon, Satan, cannot let the corporate body of Messiah, he just can't get to him to destroy him. The dragon cannot get to the corporate body of Messiah to destroy him. God removes her and dries up Satan's attempts. His only remaining option is among the individuals, pick off the weak wherever he can, and he will attempt us. Then the dragon stood on the seashore, and, as we'll see next time, calls forth the false messiah to serve him. That's what he does as he's standing on the seashore, calls forth the false messiah to serve him. So we'll close with that for tonight. Messianic Radio, for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio, changing lives one heart at a time. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. Well, good evening. Tonight we're going to start, just start, Revelation chapter 13. And we need to get right to it uh, since I'm going to try to bring together a number of things that we've studied over the last couple of years, actually add in some historical data, and hopefully show us how God has understood everything the adversary would try and carefully initiate that has brought us to the point in our study. This point in our study is still obviously a little bit in our future. There's a number of prophecies in God's Word, some of them seemingly difficult, that are in play here. So, We want to begin by reading Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse, or starting with Revelation 12, 18 and going to 13 verse 4, please, if you will. Then the dragon stood on the seashore. Revelation 13, 1 begins the next, or finishes the sentence. And I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten royal crowns, and on its heads blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, but with feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. To it the dragon gave its power, its throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast appeared to have received a fatal wound, but its fatal wound was healed, and the whole world followed after the beast in amazement. They worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? First thing we have to take note of is that the beast here is given two descriptions, two really separate and distinct descriptions for the same beast. So let's review them one at a time, then research them one at a time, and then look at how historically the two distinct descriptions come together at the particular point in time um, just coming in our future. I'm going to lay this out in the form of charts to help you keep track of what's going on and perhaps help you better visualize how this works. 
Now, this is pretty complex, so we want to use every learning aid that we can, hearing, reading, seeing, writing down. First description that we want to look at is in Revelation 13, 1, please. Give me 1 and 2. Yes, thank you. We're just going to read 1 here for the moment. And I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten royal crowns, and on its heads blasphemous names. If we look at our chart here, that we're looking here at right now, we end up with this beast that will have ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns ten royal crowns. Now, the ten royal crowns is a vertical here, if you will that takes up space beginning way back in antiquity, 753 before the Common Era, and ending up really with the coming of the false messiah and and taking over. With slight variations now, this description that we've just looked at in, in 13.1 is found in three other places in the book of Revelation, and we'll explore these. But first we need to put a timeline on this, because this beast... This beast is the fourth of four beasts. And we find that in the second description of the beast that we're given here. So let's read verse 2. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, but with feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. It To it the dragon gave its power, its throne, and its authority. And if we look over at the far chart over here, this shows us four different descriptions that are given of the four kingdoms that are there. And starting at the bottom, we see we have a terrible and frightening beast. That's what we're living in now. Prior to that was a leopard. Prior to that was a bear. Prior to that was a lion. And we're going to look at that. The scripture talks about that going in, in both directions. When we study Daniel... We discovered four beasts, or four animals, as the complete Jewish Bible chose to describe them, and each of the four are described as presenting an empire during the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles being the period during which God would allow the Gentiles to crush and rule over Jerusalem. Even today, the Gentiles are controlling the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So this beast that we look at initially in Revelation 13, 1 and 2 speaks of this fourth empire of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. So let's go there. Daniel 7, 1 through 7, if you would, please. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying on his bed. He wrote the dream down and this is his account. I had a vision at night. I saw there before me four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea, and four huge animals came up out of the sea. The sea here, by the way, is not talking about the ocean. It's talking about all the population of the world, the people. Four huge animals came up out of the sea, each different from the others. The first was like a lion. Look here on our chart. We see in chapter 7, Next to the statue, we see in chapter 7, lion. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. And I watched, as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted off the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. 
and a human heart was given it. Then there was another animal, a second one, like a bear. It raised itself up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and gorge yourself with flesh. After this I looked and there was another one, like a leopard with four bird's wings on its side. The animal had four heads and it was given power to rule. After this I looked in the night visions and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong and with great iron teeth. It devoured, crushed and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it and it had ten horns. So if we look again next to the statue on this chart, we see the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the terrible and frightening beast, which is the fourth empire. Now, take note that here are ten horns. The fourth animal slash beast slash empire of Daniel's vision has ten horns, as does the first description given to the beast of Revelation 13.1. So we're talking about the same critter. Let's begin to build our timeline from what we see so far. That first beast, the lion, is the Babylonian Empire. And it begins about 626 B.C. Look over here now. We're looking at Daniel 7 and this. And we're building this towards the centerpiece of our chart. So this is Babylon beginning in about 626 B.C. E. The second beast is a bear, Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia, which begins about 539 BCE. The third beast was like a leopard, is the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great that begins about 330 BCE. And the fourth beast is the fourth empire. This is the dreadful empire that we've been looking at already is the final empire of man, and it begins with Rome in about 63 before the Common Era. So we're moving in now in God's laying out of these beasts on the earth, allowing them to take this progression that they're taking, Satan creating each of these as he moves forward, and moving in towards a center point in our chart here. As each of these empires comes along, it displaced the empire that preceded it. But some of the characteristics of the previous empire were retained. Look at Daniel 7.12, please, if you will. As for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. Daniel 7.3 tells us that these four great animals, or beasts, came up out of the sea. Again, the human population. Now, mark this spot if you're studying at home and looking in your in your Bible instead of our overheads so you can flip back and find it easily. Then go back to Revelation 13.1, which reads, And I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten royal crowns, and on its heads blasphemous names. The sea represents the masses of people. I've mentioned that earlier. I'm going to emphasize it again. The sea represents the masses of the people. These are where these empires are being raised up from. That's who the dragon raises these empires up from, the masses of the people, and these are people that he has corrupted, corrupted with wealth and power. And like the three empires of the past, the final stage of this coming empire will be raised up. In fact, I believe is already um, in the forming its its last characteristics. 
Uh, it's going to be uh, from the masses of the people by those who have been corrupted again with wealth and power. The other thing that we want to note this time is the order in which the beasts are listed. They're in reverse order here in Revelation 13.1, leading from the fourth beast back to the point of their inception as the first beast. Daniel starts, though, with the lion and moves towards the terrible and frightening beast. Revelation, which is about the terrible and frightening beast, points back to the beginnings of the empires of man. Now, John not only saw in the vision raising up of this final empire of man, he personally viewed its early times through his own eyes. Rome was a fact of life in the world that he lived in. He lived during the early stages of the Roman Empire. Rome begins, Rome's not the entire Fourth Empire, but Rome begins the Fourth Empire in 63 before the Common Era. We've reached that point right here. Sixty years later, roughly about three before the Common Era, God presents his Messiah to the world through the birth of Yeshua. This is a juncture in time that this is all occurring. This is the fourth, if you will, the final empire that Satan can build, and he knows it, because God's presented the world now with his Messiah as this is coming into place. Then Satan will lose his empire because of the Messiah that's being brought in at this time, although it will be much later. The one that replaces Satan's empire, if you will, will be the kingdom of the Messiah. And I believe that in terms of human history, Satan had already possibly prepared for this time long before we reached this point, maybe at least 800 years prior to this time. And I'm going to present you with some history that seems to bear this out. Now, this is theory. This is theory, so accept it as that. But I see it as history fitting with what Scripture has laid out for us. So let's begin with the Scripture, Revelation 13.1 says, And I saw a beast come up out of the sea. I believe this is what happened 60 years prior to the birth of Yeshua with the Roman Empire replacing the fractured Greek Empire. It was a beast that Satan had been raising up out of the sea of humanity and would continue to raise up until it would ultimately cover the entire world. Still be with us today if you if you understand that. And this beast is describing as having ten horns and seven heads. Now we established the ten horns in Daniel 7, tied that beast there to this beast here, Revelation 13. But what about the seven heads? What about the seven heads? Where do the seven heads come from? Earlier, we noted that this same description of ten horns, seven heads, and royal crowns was used in two other places in Revelation. The first one is back a page in Revelation 12.3. So would you give me that, please? Yes. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven royal crowns. On his heads were seven royal crowns. The great red dragon, who is Satan, gives his will to the beast to the fourth empire which is a personification of the dragon of himself. It is his. They are enmeshed, and here the heads have seven royal crowns. 
Now hold that thought and go to Revelation 17, verses 1 through 4. 17, 1 through 4. Then came one of the angels with seven bowls, and he said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great core who is sitting by many waters. Remember, we're looking ahead now in Revelation. The kings of the earth went whoring with her, and the people living on earth became drunk from the wine of her whoring. He carried me off in the spirit to a desert, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast with blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittered with gold, precious stones and pearls. In her hand was a gold cup filled with the obscene and filthy things produced by her whoring. So, here it is. The meshed red dragon and the fourth beast, Satan and the fourth beast. It is the scarlet beast. We're not going to deal with the woman. What we're interested in now is the scarlet beast that has seven heads and ten horns, particularly the seven heads. Daniel 17. We're going to look at verse 7. And then we're going to move on to 9 and 10. The angel said to me, Why are you astounded? I will tell you the hidden meaning of the woman of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that are car- was carrying her. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting. Also, they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is living now, and the other is yet to come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Now, I'm going to take you back to our chart for a minute. We've got seven heads or kings listed here in the vertical, just past where the fourth empire of man comes up against these kings. We've just looked at Revelation 17, 7, and 9 through 10. The seven heads are also described as seven hills here, seven mountains, mountains indicating strength, and seven heads. Remember in the description of the red dragon, its seven heads had seven crowns, which ties to kings. Now what's interesting here is that at the time John writes this, look at the chart, five of these kings have already come and gone, five were fallen, We're down to here. One is, which is the sixth. That's one king is in place while John is alive. And one of these, clear down here at the bottom, is a king yet to come. Some untime in the future from John. Sometime in our future also, if you will. Now, a king rules over a kingdom or an empire. This is specifically talking about one kingdom or empire, the one represented by the fourth beast, the scarlet beast. And it says here that this fourth empire has had four kings, or variations in rule, come and go. Another is now in charge. Another variation is in charge now. And there is one left to follow. Not only that, we know that this last one to follow hasn't happened yet. And it's been over 2,000 years since we saw this sixth one in power. The passage says this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Now, let's begin to see if we can generate a list of wisdom. So what are these seven heads, hills, and kings? What are these? Well, some have tried 
to make these be the beasts that are talked about and add Egypt to the empires of the past. But Egypt's not mentioned in scriptures being one of the beasts. Besides that, it would only still give us four kings in the past, Egypt, Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece. And it says there are five that have already come and gone. Some have tried to make a case for the seven hills being Rome proper, the city of Rome itself. I can tell you I've been in Rome in the past 60 years, and all seven hills in Rome are still there. Five of them have not gone away, even with urban renewal. Hold your place here. Let's go back to Revelation 13.1 for a second. And I saw a beast come up out of the sea, out of humanity, with ten horns and seven heads on its horns, were ten royal crowns, and on its heads, blasphemous names. Where does the fourth beast come from? The sea. What is the sea? Back to Revelation 17:15. Then he said to me, The waters that you saw where the whore is setting are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. The fourth beast, that is the personification of Satan himself, is raised up out of the people of the world, part of the ongoing raising up of this fourth kingdom begun in antiquity. I think that what we see in this fourth kingdom began very quietly, very long ago, and was raised up over a very long period of time. Satan planning ahead for this final fourth empire well before God sent Yeshua. In fact, the fullness of time that precipitated Yeshua's first coming might just have been this beginning of coming to fruition of the fourth empire not long before his birth. Historically, though, we want to see seven heads and kings. Five before John, who wrote Revelation, one at John's time, and one in the future of John. So let's then look at history and see how this fourth Gentile empire may have been raised up from among the peoples of the earth and see how these seven heads kings converges with our four beasts in time. Early in the 8th century before the common area, a portion of the Etruscan people began to move southwestward and establish themselves on the peninsula we now call Italy in the area of the city we call Rome. By the middle of the 8th century BCE, they had organized themselves a little kingdom. Interestingly, by the time of Yeshua's birth and Yochanan's writing of the Revelation, they had developed six forms or ways of governing their kingdom, now grown into an empire, with five experiments in governing the kingdom having been discarded. So let's apply them to our chart and see what this gives us. Seven Heads, Hills, Mountains, Kings. First King Hill, the Tarquin Kings that came out to form Rome, began about 753 to 510. The second of these hills or kings were called counselors. They were the group that took over and ruled this newly formed Rome. They were in place from about 510 to 494 before the Common Era. Then we have a third group in the hills, kings, things called the plebeians or dictators, and they would have ruled from about 494 to 390 before the Common Era. The fourth kingdom or hill would have been the Republicans, uh, oligarchy of ten, they're sometimes called by the historians, 
They would have ruled from about 390 to 59 BCE. This is when Rome was becoming a real empire of power. The fifth king, or so forth, was called the Triumvirate. There were actually only two of them, but it began with three. This ruled, were in ruling, these were in place from 59 to 27 before the Common Era. Note that in our beast-slash-empire's timeline, Rome has grown to such proportions as to become the dominant empire of the region, supplanting the remains of the Greek Empire. And so it has become the start of the fourth beast, or fourth Gentile Empire, capable of trampling down Jerusalem. And it did just that in 63 before the Common Era, supplanting the brief Hasmonean rule. Rome moved in in 63 before the Common Era and took over Israel. In 27 before the Common Era, Rome turned to imperialism, the sixth head or king of the fourth beast. This was in power at the time that Yeshua was born. At the time that John wrote Revelation, five of the fourth empire's heads or kings have fallen. One is now living, the sixth, and will continue to live on, changing like a chameleon until our time. Until our time. And we're still part of it. Where I believe the transition is now beginning to be underway to move towards the seventh and final hill or king. Satan begins small and raises up his fourth empire out of the sea, the mass of humanity. It will continue to expand until it devours the whole earth. Well, it's reached that point. We can look over here now and see that the world is now divided into ten kings or kingdoms in these charts. We need to look at this chameleon-like action, though, which on our chart will fill the space between the fourth empire beginning its takeover of the world in 63 and its demise with the return of Messiah. That's this area in here, looking at this, all these facts that are below here. Rome invented imperialism. That is, sending its own people to govern the conquered areas. Prior to Rome, the usual method of empires was to set up puppet governments using local peoples, and as long as they sent the tax money in on time and didn't rebel, the conquering nation would pretty much leave them alone. Tax money was what was important. Conquest is for power and for wealth. The two narcotics Satan uses to enslave his human workers are power and wealth. Rome changed the way of doing business by sending people, like Pontius Pilate as an example, to govern the conquered territories directly. Now, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> this is the fourth and final empire of man. When it's over, so is Satan's domination of the earth. To preserve itself as long as possible, this empire has changed as the world has changed. It's like a chameleon. It's adapted. The Roman Empire, as it was at the time of Yeshua's birth, gave way to the church during the Dark Ages. The church then, the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne, ruled this. Um, it was not really Roman at that point. It was the First Reich. If you ever wonder where Hitler came up with the Third Reich from, this was the First Reich. Second Reich was World War I. Hitler created a Third Reich, or government. 
Anyhow, the Holy Roman Empire was followed by Napoleon, by Bismarck, by Hitler, by today's European Union. We've taught on that, so I'm not going to get into any depth at this time. The best way I can define it briefly is this sixth kingdom is divided into four stages as it progresses down through the time, beginning with Rome taking over in 63 of the Common Era down to today. Two of which of these are now past. There was a united stage, which was the entire Roman Empire. The Roman Empire in its entirety was ruling this empire that included God's Jerusalem. This became then a divided stage with an east-west balance of power, a two-division stage. Beginning with the Eastern and Western Roman Empires, Constantinople and Rome being the centers of those, then Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism as Christianity began to move in, Eastern Orthodoxy in Constantinople, Roman Catholicism in Rome, then Eastern Orthodoxy drifted north and became located in what's now Russia, in what's now Moscow, actually, and became Russian Orthodoxy, if you will. Ultimately, that morphed into the Soviet bloc, East and NATO, West, world organizations covering pretty much the whole world, particularly the Northern Hemisphere. Two things happened, two symbols for us. In the late 1940s, the United Nations formed a form of world government, a form of world government. One world government stage began to show its head, if you will. Those United Nations being this form of a world world government. The second thing is the Berlin Wall came down. That was what was dividing the powers of the East and the West of the world at that point was the Berlin Wall. As long as this East-West balance of power was in effect, tension between East and West, beginning in the Mediterranean Basin and expanding over the centuries to include most of the Northern Hemisphere, West against East, free world against communism. There could never be an effective single world government in place as long as that condition was in the place. That clash ended, signaled to us when the Berlin Wall came down. Will the United Nations ever become an effective world government? Well, time will tell. But there is some form of secular, if not outright evil, world system going to come into effect concerning the fourth empire of man, this scarlet beast of Revelation 17. Let's go to Daniel 7.23, please. This is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. Well, it's pretty well taken over the whole earth. A one-world government, if you will imagine this, or maybe a second united stage. This time more than just a Mediterranean basin, this time the whole world. Which brings us back to the description of the beast in Revelation 13.1, please. And I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns, 
and seven heads, and on its horns were ten royal crowns, and on its heads blasphemous names. So we've got ten heads and kings here, all listed in a row across here. Do you see this? This is Daniel 7, 8. If we think about this, Revelation 17, 12 through 14 again, please. The ten horns you saw were seven kings who have not yet begun to rule, but they receive power as kings for one hour along with the beast. This is going to be a very short duration period of time that they will be in power. They have one mind and they hand their power over and their authority to the beast. They will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those who are called, chosen, and faithful will overcome along with Him. That is those of us who are going to be taken to Him as He returns and declares war on the government that's in place set by Satan. Remember, this war is in the heavens, and it's spilled out onto the earth. Never lose sight of the fact that what's going on here is an extension of what's going on in the heavens. What about these ten horns, kings, kingdoms? This is what leads us to the seventh head or king, the false messiah ruling over the earth for three and a half years. Now notice we've got ten kings here. And we're going to begin to look now at the false messiah ruling for three and a half years. Daniel chapter 7 beginning midway in verse 7. It devoured, crushed, and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it and had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, pay attention to this now. While I was considering the horns, that's the ten horns, another horn sprung up from among them, a little horn before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. In this horn were eyes like human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly. Then I wanted to know what the fourth beast meant, the one that was different from all the others, so very terrifying with iron teeth and bronze nails, which devoured, crushed, and stamped its feet on what was left, and what the ten horns on its head meant, and the other horn that sprung up, and before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and mouth speaking arrogantly and seem greater than the others. As for the ten horns, out of this ten kingdoms will arise, and yet another will arise after them. Now who will be different from the earlier ones, and he will put down three kings. That's a whole bunch of information. Here are ten kings that are going to dominate the earth. These ten kingdoms are really being laid in place and firmed up as we speak now. They have the earth divided amongst themselves. Then will come another horn or a king, a little horn of Daniel, who will take over three of the existing kings and control three of the ten kingdoms of the earth. Revelation 17 also speaks of this. Revelation 17, 12 and 13, please. The ten horns you saw were ten kings who have not yet begun to rule, but they receive power as kings for one hour along with the beast. They have one mind and they hand their power and authority over to the beast. They hand their power over to the beast. This is where it becomes confusing. We have a fourth beast. 
a scarlet beast, the fourth empire of which these ten are part of. How do they hand power over to the beast if they're already part of the beast? There is more than one beast. There is more than one beast. There are, in fact, three beasts talked about as we go through Revelation from this point onward. The final empire of man that dominates the world is called a beast. The false messiah that we're going to introduce very quickly is the horn that uproots the three of the ten. He is called a beast. And later on, as we progress, we're going to see, number three, that the false prophet who works for the false messiah is also going to be referred to as a beast. Well, let's find out about this second beast, this false messiah, this additional horn that uproots three of the ten. Revelation 13 again, verses 1 through 3. And I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Its horns were on its horns were ten royal crowns on its head, blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, with feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. To the dragon it gave its power, its throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast appeared to receive a fatal wound. But its fatal wound was healed, and the whole world followed after the beast in amazement. At verse 3, one with fatal wound that's healed becomes false messiah, our second beast. Follow this closely. These seven heads here are the same heads of Revelation 13.2 that have seven crowns. Looking back there for a second, 12.3 please. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven royal crowns. In this passage, the seven heads have the crowns. And it's speaking of the seven kings, which at the times of Yokan's writing of Revelation, five had fallen. That's the center group. Five had fallen. One was, and one was yet to come. This vertical line on your chart. The focus is on these seven. Here the ten horns have no crowns as we look at this. There's simply seven kings. In Revelation 13.1, it tells us, And I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten royal crowns, and its heads were blasphemous names. As these ten kings lay themselves out here. They are not initially kings, but they will be made kings, and they will replace these kings with one exception. This passage, the seven kings have the crowns, and is speaking of seven kings at the time of Yochanan's writing of the Revelation. Five had fallen, one is yet to come. The vertical line in our chart, the focus is on these seven. Here are thou, then, ten horns with no crowns. In 13.1, though, it says the horns get royal crowns. The heads have no crowns. The crowns are on the ten horns. This speaks to the ten kingdoms of the end of the age, not the seven vertical on your chart. These ten horizontal on your chart, which is the focus here, are part of a change that takes place during this end time period. But another horn, the king is yet to come. Until this point, he hasn't arrived yet. But at some point in our future, as this progresses, this horn 
which uproots three of the ten horns, an eighth horn or king, one that is yet to come, is going to show up. Revelation 12.3 again. One of the heads of the beast appeared to have received a fatal wound, but its fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement. Revelation 17.8 The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up from the abyss, but is on its way to destruction. A people living on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life since the founding of the world will be astounded to see the beast that once was, now is not, but is to appear. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is setting. Also, there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is living now and the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast which once was and now is not is an eighth king, which comes from the seven and is on its way to destruction. That's our false messiah. A head of the beast that received a fatal wound, death of Messiah, false Messiah, but its fatal wound was healed, a picture of the resurrection of a Messiah, a false Messiah, that fits in with what Scripture tells us, shows us that would happen with Yeshua. This is going to be someone that pops up and it's going to be fresh and it's going to be happening in front of everybody's eyes, including some of those within the congregations of the body of Messiah who are not totally familiar with their Bibles. Now, this eighth uproots three kings, leaving seven kings and he becomes an eighth king. He is the last of the heads of the fourth empire, coming from his control of three nations, horns, he, in fact, becomes an eighth horn. What if this man, this eighth horn, gains control in his three divisions of the earth with, say, the European Union, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Association, and perhaps the Arab world, in effect, the majority of OPEC? Well, then he controls the world economy and affect the world. He can't control them without having the necessary military to control them, to accomplish the economic control of the oil. And that's a whole different study. One last point to make for you out of all of this is we hold Sukkot as being representative, being a picture of the millennial reign of Messiah for the thousand years. If the fall festivals fall as accurately on the times as they indicate as the spring festivals did, backing up seven years from the start of the millennium, puts us at the same time for the start of the seven-year tribulation period. That's easy math. Now, three and a half years into this tribulation period, the place that we're studying right now would then fall on Passover. Pesach, at a Passover. Which is, or has in it, the great picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. Look at what this is saying about bringing the false Messiah to power. First Revelation 13, 3 and 4, please. One of the heads of the beast received a fatal wound, but its fatal wound was healed, and the whole world followed after the beast in amazement. They worshipped the beast because he had given his authority to the beast. Now, you see, we've got two beasts named there. One's the false messiah, one 
is the Satan. Well, they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who can fight against it? 17, 7 through 11. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astounded? I will tell you the hidden meaning of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that was carrying her. The beast you saw once was, now is, not, will come up from the abyss, but it is on its way to destruction. The people living on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life since the founding of the world be astounded to see the beast that once was, now is not, but is to appear. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting. There are also seven kings. Ten have fallen. One is living now and the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. That's the last one. The, the beast, which once was and now is not, is an eighth king. It comes from the seven and is on its way to destruction. This is going to be an evil duplication of what Messiah Yeshua did in regard to Passover, and the world will say, who is like this? Who can fight against him? He controls the economy. He has the army to do this. Now he's raised from the dead. Who is like this? Who can fight against him? They will worship Satan. They will worship the false Messiah. The whole world, except for those sealed to God, the true believers. What did Yeshua say in Matthew twenty-four, twenty-four? Great signs and miracles will be performed so as to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. There are those who currently think they are the elect, but unfounded in God's word, who will be deceived. He, false Messiah, will control the military, a large chunk of the military of the world, large chunk of the economy of the world, and frankly will create the religion of the world which will be worship of himself. This is the story of the four beasts and the seven heads and the ten horns. Come together in one man, raised up by Satan, supported by a demonic host, in a last-ditch effort to retain the earth by Satan. Now, I'm going to hand you out copies of these charts. They'll be of an immense help as we go forward. I'm going to add a chart to you showing the ten divisions of the world as it was laid out by the Club of Rome. When did the Club of Rome lay out these ten divisions of the world? How about 1973? These have been in the process of being created since 1973. We've got a map up here, which I'll give you a copy of, showing that. What they laid out in 1973, Club of Rome, with only four major variations, has actually come into being today. Those changes are, one, Mexico has become part of NAFTA along with the U.S. and Canada. Number two, South Africa, then under white government control, is now under black government and has been moved to inclusion in the African continent regime. Three, the Eastern Bloc of the then USSR is now part of the European Union. Fourth, the empire-slash-Muslim bloc of the north coast of Africa has moved themselves into the African government regime. Now, at least we think that this is all just on paper. These have really developed themselves into truly, truly great pictures for us to, to take a look at. I've got a picture here that shows you that the 
African Union has actually developed a flag, which they have. I'm also going to tell you that the African Union has written a paper, if you will. They, they developed the flag and they flew it first on January 31st, 1910. So that's been in existence for nine years. Also, they had its 14th, the African, right there, chart on the left, second one down on the right. The African continent is a single unity, and it held its 14th ordinary session of the Assembly of Heads of State, and it created the African Standby Force. That is a group of military made up of all the nations involved that have armies that can be taken to any particular African nation that's having trouble staying within the Union and police it. We could go on and on and on, but we're out of time. We need to close. But understand, Adonai has all of this laid out for us in the book of Revelation. We're going to pick this back up next week in Revelation 13, and we'll actually start off by reading verses 1 through 4. We'll close with that. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. It's a bad world out there. So take Solace in the Word on Solace Radio. I think a little review is in order. In chapter 12, we saw that Satan, Hasatan, and all the fallen angels that elected to follow him are thrown out of heaven, down to earth. In a sense, they're excommunicated, thrown out of the kingdom. Hasatan's not happy camper over this, and he goes after Israel, who has produced her Messiah, who is his replacement in the rule over the earth. And Hasatan understands this isolation to the earth means that the final battle for control of the earth has begun. For a number of reasons, this has to be in the period after Israel has returned to the land and has control over Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Two of these three things are in place at the moment, and quite frankly, complete control over the Temple Mount could occur almost any time that Israel gets the gumption to send her forces up there. Regardless of what the Muslim world opinion is, the mosques on the Temple Mount are only there because Israel has allowed them to remain as a peace gesture, a purely secular move on Israel's part. We understand that even though the world is chanting peace, peace, there will be no peace. And I want to point out the obvious. Beginning September 11th, 2001, the status quo of the Middle East changed forever. September 11th, 2001, the status quo of the Middle East changed forever. Militant Islam went on the offensive on a worldwide basis. The prize, of course, is still Israel the land, Jerusalem, and who will reign over the world from the Temple Mount. But the war is on. It's on on a worldwide basis. And I want us to think about that. The war is on, on a worldwide basis. There have been major incidences take place in Africa, in Asia, North America, South America, and Europe. These have taken place against Jews, and anyone who is deemed an ally or a friend of the Jew, and counterattacks have been launched against the Muslim forces. 
What we're in now is a religious or holy war, and the world doesn't want to admit this. Think about it. What we're in now is a religious or a holy war, and the world doesn't want to admit this. They want to keep all this that's going on on a secular basis. That way God does not have to be acknowledged, and particularly God's involvement in this doesn't have to be acknowledged. The Muslims are the latest army that Hasatan has raised up in his efforts to annihilate the people of God, the purpose of which, the annihilation of the people of God, is to control the land, Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount. We're told that at some point, Hasatan will be hurled down to the earth with all his fellow demons, and he will go after Israel, both the people and the place, as soon as he's thrown down. Now, we haven't a clue as to when this will be. Asatan could already be thrown down. But if it hasn't happened, the table is certainly being set for it to happen. So Satan, in his fury, widens his scope of attack, takes on the other children of Israel, those who obey God's commands and bear witness to Yeshua. All other debate about what era we're in, post-Christian or whatever, what is the biggest, most powerful Christian nation on earth today? The United States. Look at the nations of the world. How many of them, other than the United States, have a president, a king, or a dictator who openly acknowledges being a practicing Christian? This is the most powerful nation on the earth, and militant Islam has started a war with us by attacking our land. They're trying to convince us that it's only the radical Muslim that we have to worry about. Well, think about this. There's a billion plus Muslims. If only 1% of that billion are radical, if only 1% of that billion are radical, there's the evidence that gives them a million-man radical army. 1% of a billion is a million. Then there's North Korea. North Korea is willing to sell weapons of mass destruction and the means to deliver them, and they don't really like the United States very much at all. Plus, we have our so-called allies, and then we have our former enemies who oppose us in this war that's being laid out across the world. They're interesting things to ponder, if you will, when the news comes on every evening. Chapter 13 tells us of the chain of command in the world under the leadership of Satan. Tells us the top brass and how they'll be brought to power and how they will control and how people of the world will largely perceive them in this battle for control of the world. Then chapter 14 introduces the fact that Yeshua will be back. Chapter 14 introduces the fact that Yeshua will be back. Not simultaneously with the throwing down of Satan to earth, but if what follows in this chapter is in chronological order, the two main combatants in this final war over whose empire will rule the world, will be on the planet for the final showdown. Hasatan, who wants to rule from Mount Zion, and Yeshua, who will rule from Mount Zion. Yeshua being on Mount Zion would obviously mean the false Messiah has been deposed from there, because that's what he's going to do. He's going to come back and, and kick the false Messiah out of the temple and off the temple mount. Let's pick this up. Then to begin this evening and read Revelation 14, please, verses 1 through 5, to get us started on moving into material we haven't covered yet. It says, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 
who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. That's important to remember. The 144,000 that are with him on Mount Zion, that's the Temple Mount, and with him there have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Verse 2, I heard a sound from the heavens like the sound of rushing waters and like the sound of pealing thunder, and the sound I heard was also like that of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living beings and the elders, and no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been ransomed from the world. They're special. They're set aside. Their function is the beginning of something. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been ransomed from among humanity as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and on their lips no lie was found. They are without defect. At this point, at this point, beyond the middle of the seven years of tribulation, this is where this point is. At a point beyond the middle of the seven years of the tribulation. And let me show you how we discern this, how we determine this. Daniel 9.27, please. He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week of years. That's the false Messiah. For half of that week, and it'll be the second half of that seven days, three and a half years, for half of that week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering on the wing of detestable things. The desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. The desolator, the one who is causing all of this to happen, is the false messiah again. Now, NIV states what we've just read a little better. says this will happen in the middle of the seven-year period. At some point in all this, and it isn't clear when, Israel is going to have erected a new temple on the Temple Mount. That's going to be a temple that's theirs that the false Messiah will be ultimately able to enter in and stop temple worship and set himself up in. Israel have erected this new temple. This is following the vanquishing of the Muslim Arabs as spelled out in Obadiah. This temple will be up and running with the Aaronic priesthood doing what Torah calls for in the middle of the seven-year period, three and a half years in the false Messiah and the false prophet set up housekeeping in this temple on Mount Zion. The false messiah is most probably the desolator that comes, although it could be Satan. false messiah could be the desolator that comes, the false messiah being the visible representative of Satan. Yeshua spoke of this in Matthew 24, 15 and 16, please. <laughs> so when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about, through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. That's a statue of the false messiah that he sets up himself next to the temple so that when he's gone and doing something, they can come worship the idol of himself rather than himself because he sets himself up to be the false messiah. When you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. The illusion, I believe, is the false Messiah stopping the temple worship and setting himself up in the temple. Now, this is at midpoint of the seven years. So, 
it's going to be well beyond this midpoint when the false messiah is ultimately deposed. It's going to be beyond this midpoint that Yeshua will show up with the 144,000, who it says are those ransomed as firstfruits from among humanity. Now, it doesn't say exactly when they're ransomed, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53, we gain some information, please. Let me say this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God, nor can something that decays share in what does not decay. Look, I will tell you a secret. Not all of us will die, but we will all be changed. It will take but a moment, the blink of an eye, at the final shofar. For the shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised to live forever, and we too will be changed. Keep that verse 52 in mind. That is telling us something. It'll take but a moment, the blink of an eye, at the final shofar. For the shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised to live forever, and we too will be changed. For this material, which can decay, that's our human flesh, must be clothed with imperishability. This, which is mortal, must be clothed with immortality. Wow. What's this say? The flesh is gone. The flesh is gone. Those living will take on a form similar to the resurrected dead. The final shofar blows. What form would this be that is we are going to take on when the final shofar blows? A spirit form. A spirit form. The flesh is gone. What's left when the flesh is gone? The spirit. So let's take that then. The first Thessalonians four, sixteen and seventeen. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry, with the call from one of the ruling angels, and with God's shofar. And those who died united with Messiah will be the first to rise. Then we who are left still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Now In verse 17 it says, We'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Air there is translated, if you will, from Ruach, which can also be translated spirit. So let's follow this along. We'll be caught up to be with the Lord where? In the cloud that he's coming back in. Those who have died are in the cloud. Those who are alive meet those who have died in the cloud. Where is the cloud? Is the cloud high in the air? No. No, it's over Mount Zion like a hoopa, like a hoopa, like a wedding canopy. Isaiah 4, verse 5. When we meet him in the cloud, we will meet him in the spirit, not high in the air. We will meet him in the spirit, but not high in the air. We will meet him in that cloud that is over Mount Zion like a wedding canopy, as we're all coming together to be with our Messiah. Think about that logically for just a minute. Are we going to hang around with our Messiah, eternally just floating in the air. There's too much description of heaven in Scripture for allow this to happen. Paul, the Jew, would have the concept of ruach, meaning spirit in this context, not meaning air in this context. Those alive will join those already dead who have joined with Messiah in the cloud, which is over Mount Zion like a wedding canopy. Let's drive that point home. Cloud is over Mount Zion, over the Temple Mount, like a wedding canopy. And those who are alive will join those already dead to meet the Lord in the Spirit, and thus we will be with Him always. Thus we will be with Him always. And this cloud that Yeshua returns in 
will not be over Mount Zion until after the false Messiah is vanquished from Mount Zion. He's gone. That will end this last seven-year period of mankind in the human form before the thousand-year reign of Messiah, where there will still be people being born and raised. That will be when we find Yeshua the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, ransomed as first fruit for God and for the Lamb from among all of humanity. These guys are the first taken. Now, if we can take notice, and there's no one else with Yeshua at this time, just the 144,000. These are the ones who had not defiled themselves with women. The word defiled is taken from the Greek. It is only used three times. Three times throughout the entire British New Testament. Each time it's used in a figurative sense, meaning not falling into unfaithfulness. They do not defile themselves. They do not fall into unfaithfulness. People sort of go wild with this. There are a number of interpretations of verse 4, and I can't resist giving you a few of these. These 144,000 are men who actually remain virgins. They remain unmarried. It's a necessity for them in light of their calling to evangelize the world during the tribulation period, which, by the way, Scripture never actually addresses them as evangelists. Others say they represent all believers. The whole messianic community and the reference to virginity represents an ideal, that is, their anticipation of their life in heaven. Others say that they are ritually pure. That's how ritual purity is described, virginity. Still another is, they are not polluted by sexual rights in heathen temples. The truth of the matter is, they are redeemed people, washed in blood, obedient to God's Torah, and as the next phrase states, following Yeshua. That is interesting in that it says they follow Yeshua wherever he goes, indicating discipleship. This lays out the concept of sheep following the shepherd wherever he goes and saying they have been ransomed from among humanity as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Complete Jewish Bible is very accurate to the original language. The term ransomed is in reference to the sin sacrifice. That sin sacrifice was the payment. And then, no longer belonging to the world, it's like Israel no longer belonging to Egypt. The leaving Egypt is like later on us no longer belonging to the world and leaving the world. Israel no longer belonging to Egypt after the blood of the Lamb was applied there. Do we realize that the blood of the Lamb was applied in Egypt so that Israel would no longer have to remain there? References in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. I repeat that. We're not going to get into it right now. But that's the verse that talks about it. Exodus 12, 21 through 24. That's an interesting story. God says that Israel is his firstborn son. It's the first of those. And it reflects itself in the 144,000 that are taken as first fruits. First fruits when we study that concept, are holy, set apart to God, 
first part of the harvest always belongs to God, and it was required that the first fruits be offered to Him. This was done at each and every harvest, giving us pictures of the coming final harvest on a constant basis. It should also be noted that the rest of the crop that the first fruit was taken from could not be put to use or was not valid until after the first fruits were given to God. Now, let's look at Leviticus 23, 9-14, please. Adonai says to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, After you enter the land I am giving you, and you harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen, to the priest. He is to wave the sheaf before Adonai, so that you will be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering to Adonai. Its grain offering is to be one gallon of fine flour mixed with olive oil, an offering made by fire to Adonai as a fragrant aroma. Its drink offering is to be of wine, one quart. You are not to eat bread, dried grain, or fresh grain until the day you bring the offering. For your God, this is a permanent regulation through all your generations, no matter where you live. This is during the time of the counting of the Omer, the time from Passover when we count off 50 days to the presenting of the Holy Spirit. This determines Shavuot. Shavuot means 50 in Hebrew. Pentecost is the Christian name given to it. Pentecost means 50 in the Greek. This passage gives you the basis for the concept of the first fruits. These 144,000 first fruits are without any lie on their lips. They're without defect. These are human beings being talked about here. Ask the question, how is it possible for any human being, much less 144,000 human beings, to be without defect? Obviously, their defects, read sinful actions, have been taken away. There has to be a desire on their part to come to this state. But only Messiah can bring them to this point. I think that these are the one-third part of what Zechariah 13.9 speaks of. Let's look at that, please. That third part I will bring through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And they will say, Adonai is my God. These are obviously not people who are content to be least in the kingdom of heaven. These are people whose goal is to be selected as great in the kingdom of heaven. They want to obey Yeshua's commands because they love him, and he will take care of their failures, so they will be without defect. They will be the first fruits taken from among humanity for God and the Lamb. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of next week's lesson. Okay, ready for this? Sneak preview of next week's lesson. Look ahead to Revelation 14. Verses 14 through 16. Then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, setting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That's Messiah. Someone like a son of man. Setting on the cloud. He's coming back in the cloud, right? With a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple. Where's this cloud? It's on the temple mount above the temple. The 144,000 are there with him. They're the first fruits. So look what's happening. Another angel came out of the temple 
and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap, because the time to reap has come, the earth's harvest is ripe. The one who's sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This is where the rest of the elect of Messiah is harvested from among humanity. The 144,000 are the first fruits. This is the rest of the harvest. One last thing before we leave this passage, this word defect here. They are without defect. Without defect is a sacrificial term meaning unblemished, more than blameless. They are not tainted by any kind of false religion or system, which is important at this time immediately following the coming to power of the false messiah. There isn't any falsehood among these. No lie on their lips. Go to Zephaniah 3.13, please. The remnant of Israel will not do wrong, nor will they speak lies, nor will they be found in their mouths a tongue given over to deceit, for they will be able to graze and lie down with no one to disturb them. Sing, daughter of Zion, shout, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. Look at how this refers to the remnant of Israel. It's it's language like used to describe the 144,000. No lie will be on their lips. Back to Revelation 14, please, 6 through 8. Next, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with everlasting good news to proclaim to those living on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. In a loud voice, he said, Fear God, give him glory, for the hour has come when he will pass judgment. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, She is fallen, she is fallen, Babel, Babylon the Great. She has made all the nations drink the wine of God's fury, caused by her whoring. The first fruits are taken to God and Messiah, but the rest of humanity hasn't yet been harvested. God is giving every possible chance to humanity to repent. Note that these angels' message is available to all the earth's inhabitants. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people up there in verse 6. In Revelation 8.13, the eagle who announced the three woes to the inhabitants of the earth was described as being in mid-heaven. These angels here, along with the third angel that we'll look at next, are announcing to the world the truth of what is coming on and what they must do to gain eternal life. The world is being given here one last chance. The world is being given here one last chance between the harvest of the first fruits and the rest of the crop that follows to be part of that crop. This is in the period between the first fruit being offered to God and the main harvest being taken. It's like there's a period of countdown going on. Again, it's like counting the Omer. The eternal good news is being proclaimed to every tribe, language, and people. The warning of impending judgment is given and what must be done to avoid it and that it will be very soon forcibly demonstrated on the earth. That it will very soon be forcibly demonstrated on the earth. That God is sovereign. That evil will be finally overthrown. What is going on at this point is the inhabitants of the earth, for the most part, are worshiping the beast of Revelation 13, the false messiah and his system. Ultimately, Satan, Hasatan, is the power behind that system. Terror is more than fear. Terror has a reverence and an awe surrounding it. The world has been under the kind of regime that was displaced in Iraq when Saddam Hussein came in. 
And I fear that the Earth's inhabitants will be much like the Iraqis and that they won't recognize the one who comes to relieve their impression really wants for them. I think that the world is going to miss this. The old regime is being replaced. We're going to see in chapter 16 that even during judgment, they don't want to repent. Even as God's bowls of wrath are being poured out, God will harvest his people sealed to him before the bowls of wrath are poured out. And here are these angels bringing warning to everyone on earth, final warning of what's coming. Let's pick this up with the second angel and then the third angel. Revelation 14.8, please. Another angel. A second one follows, saying, She is fallen. She is fallen. Bevel the great. She made all nations drink the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Another angel, a third one, followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will indeed drink the wine of God's fury poured undiluted into the cup of his, God's rage. He will be tormented by fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb, and the smoke from their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and its image, and those who receive the mark of its name. This is when perseverance is needed on the part of God's people, those who observe his commands and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. The first angel warns that the hour of God's judgment has arrived, and for that reason all of the people on the earth should fear him and give him glory. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The implication, the first angel is telling the world, is to stop worshiping the man that they've been worshiping. That's what they've been doing, worshiping a man. They've been doing this like the Romans worshiped Caesar, whoever, whichever Caesar it was, at the beginning of the fourth empire of man. The world will be worshiping their ruler at the end of this fourth empire of man. A man with extraordinary powers, but a man nonetheless. Quit worshiping this man and turn to God. Fear God, because the hour has come when he will pass judgment. Worship God and give him glory. Look at that last line of Revelation 14.7. Listen to this. Worship him who made the sea and the spring water. What does water have to do with this whole concept? We have to ask, Why put that phrase in here? How do we think creation is going to be explained at this time? By evolution. That's how creation is going to be being explained, is by evolution. That explanation is gradually taking over most of the so-called Christian world today. Water is fundamental to all creation theories, as well as God's creation itself. Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 said, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was unformed and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water, and creation began. The false creation story is evolution. The false creation story is evolution. And there's some water and things begin to happen in the water because of chance reactions. So the next thing you know, there was pond scum. We're talking evolution here. Well, then random selection took over, and out of this pond scum came all of the species of living things, including man, via the chimpanzee. 
evolution is taught as a very benign thing. All this sort of happened, and here we are today. But let me tell you that evolution is a very aggressive spiritual activity denying the existence of God. Evolution is a very aggressive spiritual activity denying the existence of God. There is no need for God. All of this just happened out of water will be what is held under the false Messiah. Here God is identified as the source of the water in our scripture. Note that what is listed is living water, the sea and the springs of water. We could teach on that for a while, living water. Since God is the source of water as well as the heavens and the earth, it is God that must be worshipped, not man who thinks he is involved from pond scum, just happens to be here. The second angel that follows announces to the world that the system of the false messiah has come apart. The Greek grammar here puts emphasis on the words fallen. It indicates that fallen is a completed action here as far as God is concerned. It indicates the certainty of the action and its eminence that it's already in place. We'll get into this more in chapter 17, but understand that the beginning of the four empires of man was with Babylon. And something of each empire, each of the four empires, lived on past its demise and up to this point of the final shofar. What began with Babylon is also going to cease at this point. There will be no more empires of man. And it's this succession of empires beginning with Babylon, particularly this final form of the fourth empire, that's responsible for all the nations having to drink the wine of God's fury because of their whoring. The unfaithfulness of these empires, the pursuit, their pursuit of false gods. You might also be interested to know that Babylon was a code word for Rome back in the first century. Babylon was a code word for Rome during the first century. Some have even extended this usage as a code word to Roman Catholicism, and I won't dispute this one way or another, but I think it leads up a blind alley, diverts us from what we should focus on. This is talking about a wicked world religious system begun with Babylon, promoted and controlled by Hasatan, brought to its full fruition by the false messiah at this time of the Great Tribulation, And this second angel is saying, this is ceasing at this point. This is all coming unglued. Another reason to pay attention to what the first angel had to say. Then there's the third angel following hard on the heels of the first two. In a loud voice, this angel announces the judgment that is going to befall those who have cast their lot with the false messiah. Detailed information on what's going to happen to anyone who has cast their lot with the false Messiah. And John's remark that is tied to the end of this gives us a particular focus as to who this is, at least in part directed to. This is when perseverance is called for on the part of God's people. This also marks the end of this series of announcements. When we pick this up next week in verse 13, God will be in the process of taking the actions that he's promised. That is being given by these three angels. What is being given by these three angels is the absolute final warning that mankind will be given. Etch that into your mind. What has been given by these three angels is the absolute final warning that mankind will be given. People are told what they can do, what is to be done, 
And what will happen if they don't listen? The announcements are essentially the good news, the defeat of an evil system, and the consequences of rejecting the good news. The third angel concerned himself with what happens to those who take the mark of the beast. He advises them that this is a point of no return. Taking the mark of the beast is a point of no return. Apparently, the mark on the forehead program is implemented continuously right up to the final day of this last empire of man. Kind of like the death camps were operated to the very end by the Nazis. This is a final warning to any who have not taken the mark of the beast. This is a final warning to any who have not taken the mark of the beast. Don't do this. Don't do this. This is a time for perseverance. Look at this language. This clearly indicates that there is a choice that man can make that's irrevocable. Back in Scripture in Revelation 14 verses 9 through 10, it says, If anyone worships a beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hands, he will indeed drink the wine of God's fury, undiluted into the cup of his rage. He will be tormented by fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. If someone does this, he will indeed drink the wine of God's fury poured out undiluted. He will suffer this. There's no optional language offered here. There is no optional language offered here. This is what's going to happen. No one, no one who has truly studied God's word will take this mark of the beast out of ignorance. We also have to note that two worldwide proclamations have been made, and the third one is in the progress here, to every tribe, nation, language, and people. Plus, there's been two witnesses. Remember the two witnesses who were in Jerusalem for 1260 days, three and a half years, killed and then resurrected and taken up into heaven? To accept the mark now will have to be a conscious choice. Those who take the mark will drink the wine of God's fury undiluted. The bowls, judgments of chapters 15 and 16, and then they'll be condemned to eternal torment. They'll get no slack day or night. They'll be direct object of God's wrath. And just think about this. The fact that it is done under the supervision of the holy angels and the Lamb himself. People don't think of Messiah as being in this role. The fact that this is done under the supervision of the holy angels and the Lamb himself gives assurance of the certainty of this. But can we see the rationale of people? God knows that I need a job. God knows that I need food. And God loves me. And I'll be forgiven by God if I take on this mark just to survive. Just worship the beast on the surface. Just to get the job I need. Well, this argues against the rationale of that theology. Some people, some people can't seem to get past the fact that when Yeshua returns, he's in a totally different role than when he was here the first time. Etch that into our minds. Some people can't seem to get past the fact that when Yeshua returns, he's in a totally different role. He's in a totally different role. He's back to rule with an iron staff. He's back to rule with an iron staff. Those who love him by following his commands will rule with him with this iron staff. Who is giving this revelation to John? Yeshua. Those who do not keep his commands, among which is do not take the mark of the false Messiah worship him, will suffer the iron staff. 
And this is a very unpopular stance in today's theology. Next week, we pick up Messiah, bringing those who have chosen him to himself. Rest of the harvest, Sukkot, Isaiah 4 again. That cloud that is a chuppah is also a sukkah, a place of temporary dwelling for the next thousand years. A Mount Zion, the place for the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we'll stop with that. Messianic Radio, for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio, changing lives one heart at a time. From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. And tonight we begin the what is to come portion of the book of the Revelation. So let's start by reading Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, please. It says, After these things I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice like a trumpet which I had heard speaking with me before said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after these things. And this is after that time frame that was represented in the seven congregations of chapters 2 and 3 that we've just closed up, just finished looking at. This begins looking into things at the end of the current age, the one that we're living in right now. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this verse 1, and I think you'll see why when we get done with it. First of all, this verse has a lot of meaning to those that believe in a pre-tribulation rapture which I don't, by the way. They take this command, come up here in this verse, to signify that it's talking about the time of the rapture of the church, that believers are taken up to be with Yeshua before the opening of the seals, or the trumpets of Revelation chapter 6 and 9. In and of itself, this pre-trib rapture tends to be an anti-Semitic stance, and I want to introduce that thought to you a little bit early, that this pre-trib rapture tends to be an anti-Semitic stance, and I think you'll understand. It's a dimensional view that the rapture would end the church age, which is being called by dispensationalists the dispensation of the church, and that's an era where God is not dealing with Israel, according to them which makes this whole concept anti-Semitic. Now, if God's dealing only with the church, once the church is raptured and out of the way, then God goes back to dealing with Israel. And the church goes to God, and Israel goes to tribulation with all of the other non-believers in the world. And again, I believe that this concept at its basis has some anti-Semitism in it. It's a putting down of Israel, if you will, but beyond that, and think about this. Beyond that, Israel became a nation again 70 years ago through God's hand, and the church is still here. So what does that do with that theology? Sort of blows a hole in it, doesn't it? That God is not dealing with Israel during the church age. We want to look at this doctrine of a rapture of the church first because whether one's stance is on this doctrine or not, it will taint or skew the rest of the book as they go through it as part of the study, because 
the rest of Revelation will be interpreted in a way to make it fit whatever position one has elected to embrace in regard to this pre-tribulation rapture. Now, in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation is what is transpiring in heaven and is just before the actual tribulation begins. With these two chapters begins the third major section of the book of Revelation and deals with things that must come to pass. That's very definitely stated in this. This is the introduction to the things that will happen in heaven that set things in motion. Many premillennials see the rapture of the church in this verse, this chapter 4, verse 1. And this requires, frankly, if you see that in this, it requires an allegorical interpretation. But, but, there's the golden rule of interpretation, which says, if it makes sense in the plain sense, don't try to make any other sense of it. To which I will add, or you'll get nonsense. This verse is merely an invite to John to come up into heaven in a vision in order for God to show him things that must come to pass. It is time for John to be shown all of the period following what the seven churches laid out for us in chapters 2 and 3. Now, a dispensational view is these are things that must happen after the church age, after the final church period, which is a period of apostasy as we looked at uh, last week. Dispensationalists interpret it this way. This is what will happen after the church age, but after this, closing verse 1, obviously refers back to Revelation 1, verse 19. Let's put that up on the screen, please. So write down what you see, both what is now and what will happen afterwards. So, what does John seen to this point? Well, he's seen the seven churches and what they represent, and he's written that all down for us, so we understand there. But he's also supposed to write down what will happen afterward. See, this is the glorified Messiah that's speaking to John here in Revelation 1.19. What is now to John would be those, again, the seven letters of the Messianic communities. Now, Another group, anti-dispensationalists, are we keeping these separated and tracked? Another group, anti-dispensationalists, tend to want to throw out the prophetic nature of the seven letters in order to disprove dispensationalism. In other words, if we can get rid of what these seven letters are theoretically being posed to us, then we can perhaps disprove dispensationalism. But my question to you is... Looking back over our study, what if we did that to the 70 weeks of Daniel, which is worded very indirectly? See, that was what we would call editing, and we're not allowed to edit Scripture. Do not add anything to it. Do not take anything away from it, as spoken of at least three times in the Old Testament. So let's let God say what he's saying and not get embroiled in proving or disproving man-made doctrine to the point of losing sight of the message. And that, I think, is why we have so many, I'm going to use the term, thoughtless theories out there about the book of the Revelation. As people have gotten so embroiled in proving or disproving man-made doctrine that they've lost sight of the actual message that's being given us. There is an indistinct 
period of time between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, marked by characteristics of what is now, after which John is told what will happen afterwards will take place. Now, I've digressed some here. What is written from chapter 4 on, onward is what is hereafter and follows the time frame laid out by the seven churches. The dispensationalist position is the church will already be in heaven. Now, this is merely a personal invitation to John, is what they're saying, so he can come up and receive the rest of the prophecy involved in the book of the Revelation. I agree with that. That's all that this amounts to. That's all that this amounts to is an invitation to John to come up and be given the rest of the prophecy that's going to be laid out for us as we continue through the study of the book of the Revelation. It says, after these things in verse 4.1 and afterwards here in one we we'll see these phrases over and over again as we work our way through the book of the Revelation. These phrases are chronological setups for us. The connection to all of this really is the making of a chronological link pointing to events that will happen immediately following the events in the preceding context. And in verse 1, in the phrase, must happen after these things, John introduces that other events will chronologically follow the previous context. At this point, John's visions will shift from earth to heaven. Also note that nothing is said about removing believers in any of the scripture that we're looking at or going to be going through. That's all created out of theology. Also note that nothing is said about the removing of believers. The pre-tribulationist thinking is based on three assumed factors. One, the sequence of John's visions corresponds to the sequence of the events coming in future history. Let me read that to you again. The sequence of John's vision corresponds to the sequence of events coming in future history. Two, the Messianic community, the church, the body of Messiah, does not appear at all in chapters 4 through 18. There's no mention, there's no word used there that points towards the church or the body of Messiah. Number three, those who come to the faith during the tribulation, they believe, are not part of the Messianic community. This is a major argument put forth by pre-tribbers. Those who come to the faith during the tribulation period are not part of the Messianic community that has gone before. They can't be, according to the pre-tribbers, because the Messianic community, in their minds, will have already been taken away. So that's why they come up with that point. Now, that's according to their pre-trib theology. How about some arguments against these assumptions? First one is the text really gives us no reason to assume that the sequence of John's vision will be the same as the order which the prophesied, of prophesied events will occur. They are liable to be, but we can't assume that because we're not told directly that it will be. In fact, though, there will be insertions, among other things. Revelation 12, 1 through 5, if you put that up there, please. This is an insertion that ends up in that area where there is no mention made about there being a church or a body of Messiah. 
It says, Now a great sign was seen in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun under her feet, the moon, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and about to give birth, and she screamed in the agony of labor. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven royal crowns. Next. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them down to the earth. It stood in front of the woman about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who would rule over all the nations with an iron staff, but her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, let me make a comment at this point. A lot of viewpoints have been published. Keep an open mind about this. We're not required to automatically accept these because they're published views. For instance, if these events don't occur in the order that they're given, we're wasting our time here, would be a thought. Also, flashbacks are allowable literary devices. What we've just looked at here in Revelation 12, 1 through 5 is a flashback. It's our example. And summations will also be allowed. We're going to find a number of these. Neither flashbacks nor summations interrupt the flow of events, so we have to keep an open mind, think for ourselves. Let's take a look at a second argument against these assumed pre-trib factors. It is not true that the Messianic community is absent from chapters 4 through 18 just because the Greek word ecclesia does not appear after 3.22 or until 22.16. Just because the Greek word ecclesia, church or messianic community, does not appear after 3.22, then again until after 22.16, doesn't mean that the messianic community or the church is absent from this time frame. Ecclesia not appearing between Revelation 3.22 and Revelation 22.16, I'm harping on this, doesn't mean the body of Messiah is not involved. If this means that the body of Messiah is not involved in those chapters and verses, then one might also infer that the church does not take part in the marriage of the Lamb because Revelation 19.7-9 falls in the area where Ecclesia doesn't appear. As there's Revelation chapter 20 where the millennium and the last judgment are discussed. Yet they have to be there in order to be involved in this. We have to see this. If the church doesn't appear in one instance, how can it appear in other instances? That would lead us to smorgasbord interpretation. I think we will also see as we go further in our study that believers are still present on the earth throughout this entire period. Maybe not in heaven, but they're still present on the earth. Let's look now then again at Assumption 3, and the argument is that the tribulation believers, those that find Messiah during the tribulation, do not belong to the Messianic community. This is held as an assumption by the pre-tribbers. This depends on drawing a rigid distinction between Israel and the church, as do most of the pre-tribulation theories. It's assumed, it's assumed that during the present era, that dispensationalists called parenthesis or church age, God's clock with Israel has stopped 
stopped at the end of the 69th week of Daniel, Daniel 11:26-27, and he is only dealing with the church. I'm again harping on this point. After the rapture of themselves in their theology, Israel's clock will begin to tick again as Daniel's 70th week. That's only going to be Israel here during Daniel's 70th week, which is where the tribulation unfolds. This is a form of circular reasoning, I guess. For if it's only believers who come to faith during the church age who are counted as part of the messianic community and the church age is defined as ending with the starting of the tribulation, then by definition no one who comes to the faith during or after the tribulation is in the messianic community. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Even though by every other criterion their faith is identical to that of the messianic community members, so that rose up a comment within me, and that comment was, that would make them second-class citizens. And that ain't so. That ain't so. That would make all of Israel that is saved in Zechariah chapter 13, which is a third of Israel at the time, which is going to end up being over three million people that are brought through the fire. That would make them second-class citizens by this definition. I can't begin to fathom that being God's plan for his chosen people, that there be any class of people within the heavens. The argument here is, by the pre-tribbers, that there is a distinction between believing Israel and the church. But like all things that God has done, there is really, really no abrupt distinctive drawn line that one day all of this changes without warning. The church is gone all of a sudden and Israel is left. What about the Messianic Jewish communities that have been springing up all over the world? What happens with us? We're Jews. Well, I think we're going to be here along with everybody else. It's easy to see that replacement theology creeps into this kind of reasoning. I want us to keep an open mind as we start through the rest of this study. Surely some of us may have been influenced in the past by theories presented that we've looked at, but if we look at what God is saying here without previous bias to make it conform to what we're looking at or think we know, and there are many theories, just because someone was able to get their own theory down in print doesn't make it right unless it conforms to the context of the entire Bible, unless it conforms to the context of the entire Bible. And that's why we spent all that time before we actually started the book of Revelation of it itself, because we have to apply Daniel and Zechariah and the Olivet Discourse, as well as all the rest of the prophets. What is going on in the rest of the book of the Revelation does not begin in chapter 4. When we hear theories that would indicate something other than that, we must apply 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which I quote to you, Test everything, hold on to the good, but keep away from every form of evil. We've looked at some theories that have problems. We're all smart enough, I believe, to make up our own minds, and we all have the same Bible that these guys have been using that have come up with these theories. So let's then... Take a look at the rest of the book of the Revelation with an open mind. And to do that, then let's go back and begin with Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. 
And the voice like a trumpet which I had heard speaking with me before said, Come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things. This begins, obviously, after these things I looked. This phrase is a type of a formula language which we will see with slight variance introduce a number of new visions throughout Revelation. After this, after these things. Then it goes on to say, and there before me, and there before me. These words emphasize that what John sees and is about to write down is before his very eyes. Not some abstraction, not something that he's been given. Understand, John has actual physical visual input. It's not a thought. It's not an abstraction. He is seeing this just like I'm seeing you, just like you're seeing me right now. John is getting visual input before his very eyes was a door standing open in heaven. Depending on how each of you view heaven, whether it's up there someplace or as a parallel dimension, whatever, God has opened a door for John to move through out of the constraints of time and space and be able to view these things that are going on in an internal perspective. He's being given the opportunity to see here exactly what God is saying. It's interesting that the word heaven here is in the singular. In fact, the word translated heaven is used throughout Revelation 52 times. 52 times, and all but one time it is singular. Only once, plural, Revelation 12, 12, and then only in the 1901 American Standard Version. The word heaven does not always mean the same thing. Understand that. Here it essentially means God's dwelling. Here it's essentially meaning or pointing to what is God's dwelling. But in the sense of this is where God has his dwelling, is not talking about where God has his TV and his lounge chair and his microwave, where he hangs out. Because God's omnipresent. He's everywhere in the creation all at one time. By God's dwelling, we're talking about a place where God chooses to reveal himself. We're looking at a place where God chooses to reveal himself. Look at it from these terms. The place where heavenly realities are made plain. This is the concept of God's dwelling. And this is the heaven that John is being translated into. Now, the next thing that John observes is a voice speaking to him. There's a voice speaking to him, so he also has auditory input. This is not a statement that John overheard this. The speaking was directly to him, and the voice was identifiable by John. It was a voice that he'd heard before at the introduction to Revelation, namely that of the glorified Messiah. The sound of the voice is again characterized as sounding like a trumpet. Let's go back to Revelation 1.10 and read that very quickly again. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He's hearing the same thing again. It's the same voice that John heard before. Let's make it clear that John did not hear a trumpet, but a voice that was loud and clear, having a tonal quality similar to that of a clean trumpet note being blown. And the reason for this interwoven into this, is here was auditory input. 
that he had to understand completely. John heard a voice that said something loud and clear. It's not that he's going to miss anything in this. He heard a voice that said something loud and clear. But there's something symbolic also here. It sounded like a trumpet, and the trumpet is associated with the last things, with the last days, and would bring to John's mind the end times and judgment, this along with the call to attention. All these things would be impressed into John. The voice commands John to come up here, and I will show you what must happen after all these things. He's coming into heaven, and a vision is apparently necessary for him to understand what is to take place on earth. If he stayed in his normal environment, he's not going to be able to understand or comprehend what is going to take place from the point of view that it can be seen in the heavenly environment. Come up here and I will show you what must happen. And John, are you ready for this, will remain in heaven until the close of chapter 9. This is the beginning of chapter 1. He will remain in heaven until the close of chapter 9. It uh, must also be considered that heaven here, as we mentioned before, is a place where God chooses to reveal himself. Now, God chose to reveal himself in a couple of other places. Another place where God chose to reveal himself was on the mountain to Moses in the cloud that led them out of Israel. So here is where God is chosen to reveal himself to John and reveal what he once revealed to John. This is the place where heavenly realities are going to be made understandable to the extent that man can understand them. That's an important concept. This is the place where heavenly realities are made understandable to the extent that a man can understand them. Why was John summoned into heaven? Because there are certain realities that could not be made understandable in any other environment. There are certain realities that could not be made understandable in any other environment, and John can understand them only to the extent that he can be made to understand them. Remember that God is dealing with a human being here, like the rest of us, has probably even more limited comprehension of things God knows, because the Bible hadn't even begun to be set down then, that we've read. Now, this is almost always missed. The reason for this is to show John what must, emphasize must. The reason for this is to show John what must happen. Must happen. The word must in this cannot be overlooked. The book of Revelation is not a chronicle of future history, merely a foresight of something that's coming and having interest solely for that reason. Certainly it is that, but it's not the real essence of Revelation. From this fourth chapter on, the essence is... These things must happen. These things must happen. This is the working out of divine will. So when we start to see some of these things that will happen and we ask why that, we always have to keep this in mind and go back to this statement. These things must happen. This is God's will. God's laying them out to John in that form. The revelation must be understood in that context. God is in absolute control. The revelation of future events are not events that are in the future by chance, but will certainly occur because they must occur, because they're part of the divine plan. I'm harping, I'm harping, I'm harping. This first verse is very important. It's a very important key to understanding the rest of the book. 
It tells us more than meets the eye, which I think we will understand at this point. This must happen. All right, moving ahead. Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. John speaking, Instantly I was in the Spirit, and there before me in heaven stood a throne, and on the throne someone was sitting. Well, that ought to be a wake-up call. The one sitting there gleamed like diamonds and rubies, and a rainbow shining like an emerald encircled the throne. Mm. The word throne here is interesting. In all of New Testament, throne is used 62 times. 47 of them are in the book of the Revelation. In all of the New Testament, throne is used 62 times. 47 of those times are in the book of the Revelation. This starts off, instantly, I was in the Spirit. There's some controversy among commentators about why John was again in the Spirit when identical language was used in Revelation 1.10. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. A lot of different thought on this. First of all, in 1.10, John is not addressed by a Messiah until after he is in the Spirit. Here in chapter 4, verse 2, the words of Messiah precede him being in the Spirit. So, is he still in the Spirit that Messiah can talk to him before he makes the statement about being still in the Spirit? If so, why would he then go to trouble to again talk about being in the Spirit? He's making a point. Here's one thought, though. Even though the language is identical, Perhaps a more intense spiritual state is required. A different spiritual state is required to be translated into heaven than the one merely just to hear the voice of Messiah speaking. A different spiritual state being required to be translated into heaven, either bodily or spiritually. What we are looking at here is a change of circumstances. Even though the language is the same, there are two different spiritual states in play here. That's one theory. Another is, these are not during the same event, the event in which John is made privy to what Yeshua said to the angels of the Messianic communities had already ceased prior to this. This is a new event, and John is once again being placed into the Spirit. So this would say that he has drifted out of the Spirit and is being brought in. I don't fancy that one very much. One last thought, that John is just reiterating what became before in 110. He's still in the Spirit, just restating the fact that he's in the Spirit during the whole event and has now been taken up into heaven instantly. That one's the one I like. Now, he's been taken up into heaven instantly. There's three thoughts on this. We can take our choice. This is a quick review again. People have these three theories. Why the language in the Spirit is used more than once. Once before Messiah talked to him and once after Messiah talked to him. The next clause, there before me, indicates a transfer from earth to heaven in an instant. That verse starts off, verse 4-2, instantly I was in the Spirit. And there before me, in heaven, stood a throne, and on the throne was someone sitting. The thought is that no time was involved. That there he was in heaven, and in a twinkling of an eye, doesn't say that in one minute I was on earth, one minute I was in heaven, and a new second elapsed. No, no, no time was involved. Bang, he was there, and it was there. Wow. 
It's like I'm sitting here minding my own business, and the next thing I know, I'm in heaven, and there before me stood a throne. John's in jail on Patmos, and blink, he's in heaven. No time passage. First thing he sees is a throne with someone sitting on it. First thing that has to be considered, is there a physical throne like the kind King David would have sat on? The thought is, probably not. There's no doubt, no doubt that John saw a throne. He said, I saw a throne. The spiritual reality being communicated to John through his being shown this throne was authority, absolute authority. Is there a spiritual throne? Obviously, because heaven obviously was transfigured or transformed into a visual object that John could see. And what he saw was that throne which symbolized absolute authority. John saw someone sitting on that throne. The one sitting on that throne was not described for us in general physical terms, no physical description whatsoever, but the word someone implies a physical form that we recognize or would recognize as usual, like perhaps a human form. This someone was sitting on the throne, and this symbolizes this someone was in possession of absolute centralized authority, had all authority. Now I want you to stop and think. Back in the garden, Revelation chapter 3, there man was created in God's own image. And here was someone that walked in the garden with man. This was someone that was also in the image like of man. So here, in the very first adventure in creation, we have someone with all the authority that you can think of. The author of the creation there with man in the garden there in his presence. And as we move ahead, a man came to Abraham with two angels on their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we move through, I won't stop at all of these. As we keep moving, we end up with Yeshua who came and took possession of a human body, God in possession of the form of a man. Now, after he goes into the tomb, he departs. He departs, and when he comes back, yes, he looks like a man, but he looks like the man that was with Adam back in the garden, not like a physical human being anymore, because that human, physical human being would be like us. And here we are, having moved ahead, until we're here now where John is being called up into heaven, and there sitting on the throne is someone who looks like a human being. And I think that's that same one sitting on the throne that was one that was the agent of creation that walked in the Garden of Eden with the man. He had all authority. That one sitting on the throne. He had all authority. In verse 3, the only description of one sitting on the throne, the one with all authority, is like the light. Think about this now. We're changing a direction. Is like the light that filters through two precious stones. These stones being described in most translations as Cornelian and Jasper. Our complete Jewish Bible is one of the very few that doesn't use Cornelian or Jasper. We'll see in a minute why most translators use Cornelian and Jasper instead of the diamond and ruby like the complete Jewish Bible does here. We cannot be absolutely certain what these stones actually identify because there's other translations that use stones. 
We cannot be absolutely certain that these are the stones actually identified because there are other translations that use other stones. But the majority of the translations use carnelian and jasper and are generally accepted that this is the color of the light that is shining through. John didn't see the stones. He saw what gleamed. He saw what gleamed. He saw the light. He saw the lights. It was a light source. And this light source is identified as or in terms of these particular precious stones. The light would take on that color by shining through those stones. Let's go to Exodus 28.17, please. Putting on it, this is speaking of the vest. This is speaking of the vest. Moses being directed to make the breastplate for the priests. And this is talking about the setting on the breastplate of stones. Four rows of stones. The first row is to be carnelian, a topaz and an emerald. The second row, a green feldspar, a sapphire and a diamond. The third row, an orange zircon, an agate and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx and jasper. That's why most translations use as the first one the carnelian and as the last one the jasper. They're to be mounted in their gold settings. The stones will correspond to the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. They're to be engraved with their names as a seal that would be engraved to represent the twelve tribes. This is God directing Moses to make the breastplate for the high priest. First stone is to be carnelian, last stone is to be jasper, the same two stones usually translated for the light of Revelation 4.3. The twelve precious stones are mounted on the breastplate of the high priest, each signifying a tribe of Israel, with the first stone being carnelian representing the tribe of Reuben, the last stone being jasper representing the tribe of Benjamin. Do we see the essence of this? What's being said here in Revelation is perhaps the significance of that breastplate that the high priest wore. The first stone and the last stone encompassing all of the twelve tribes of Israel. And that is the light. Here is the light. It is Israel. The light is Israel. And that's why Israel is the chosen people. That's why Israel is the chosen people. God's light shone through Israel. Yeshua said, I am the light of the world. Who did Yeshua come to the world through? The light shone through Israel. Here we see the light on the throne in heaven with all authority. These two stones, the first and last stones of the breastplate, representing all the tribes of Israel, what came out of Israel, God's word, Torah, what came out of Israel, Messiah. We have to see that. It's really something to think about. We can't be certain of the color of these stones. Jasper could possibly be green, partially translucent. It could also be red or yellow. But the reason for green was green was the rarest form of jasper and most prized in ancient times. The most prescient form of jasper. Carnelian was red. Verse 3 ends with a rainbow shining like an emerald. Very interesting concept. Let's go to Genesis 9, 12 through 17. God added, Here is the sign of the covenant I am making between myself and you and every living creature with you for all generations to come. I am putting my rainbow in the cloud. There it will be a sign of the covenant between myself and the earth. 
Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and a rainbow is seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant, which is between myself and you and every living creature of any kind, and the water will never again become a flood to destroy all living things. Next, the rainbow will be in the clouds so that when I look at it, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of any kind on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between myself and every living creature on the earth. I think that the fact that we have a rainbow shining like an emerald that encircles the throne, and that we have a centralized throne, someone sitting on it emitting light, and around it encompassing, is this rainbow like an emerald? This is difficult to visualize, but I think that's what this is all pointing to. Some look at this as a halo rather than a rainbow. Others combine the thought, like the Phelps translation, that is like a halo of an emerald rainbow combining both concepts to try and get some visual thought. The rainbow is depicted in Scripture as a sign of God's covenant. The same thought is used here with this light that's encompassing the throne, a rainbow resembling an emerald that encircled the throne. One of the things with regard to the rainbow here, it's circular, indicating something eternal. has no beginning, has no end. The stone emerald, Literally, a rock crystal is of uncertain meaning. Emerald is most accepted with the rainbow being green in color. Many interpret the purpose of the halo rainbow to signify the eternal covenant. But it also is there to conceal him who sat on the throne. And that's an interesting thought. One of the purposes of the rainbow is to conceal, or at least partially conceal, the one that sat on the throne. John in verse 2 said he saw one but gave no description. This is a partial concealment, possibly filtering that part of the glory of God that man in the flesh cannot see and live. John was taken up into heaven and allowed to view the absolute authority of all things on his throne. But John couldn't view him openly, completely in his present state, without it being filtered. This has happened before. Go to Exodus 33.18. But Moses said, this is in front of the burning bush, the other time that God has revealed himself. Moses said, I beg you to show me your glory. And he, that is God, replied, I will cause my goodness to pass before you, and in your presence I will pronounce the name of Adonai. Moreover, I will show favor to whomever, whomever I will, and I will display mercy to whomever I will. But my face, he continued, cannot see, because a human being cannot look at me and remain alive. So here is John that's come in to heaven and found one sitting on the throne, and he's probably not getting a clear look at the face. Wow. Notice it's God's goodness, just his goodness, which is part of his glory that passes before Moses. The rainbow filtered out what have killed John, would have taken his life. The stone used to represent the priesthood was an emerald. Now, what that signified back in the Old Testament when tied to this, what did the priesthood do? It stood between the people and God. It stood between the people of God. If anyone tried to penetrate that, to go past that, to not observe that, they would die. If they tried to go past the priesthood and directly into the presence of God in the temple, they would die. They would be cut off before God. 
Remember, death is separation, not cessation of life. If someone went up to the temple and decided they were going to bypass the priesthood, go directly before God, God cut them off. And we see this being pictured for us over and over and over again, including John walking into the temple here in the fourth chapter of Revelation, but not being able to see directly the face of God. Most were actually separated from their physical bodies. King Uzziah, remember King Uzziah? Second Chronicles twenty six sixteen, He was struck with leprosy because he went into the presence of God. And it happened instantly when he tried to bypass the priesthood. He had to be replaced by his son as king because of his condition. He could never come again into the temple to worship. The emerald colored, the emerald colored to the filtering rainbow and the emerald being the stone of the priesthood that stood between God and the people, effectively filtering God from them. I find that an interesting coincidence as we study this chapter. And I know I gave you a lot of information very quickly, so I'm going to open this up to questions because this finishes up us for this evening. We'll pick this up again uh, with verse 4 next week. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time.